Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome uh, to the Delicious Legacy podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Um, uh, really glad to have you here. And um, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and about um, your projects and your books. I'm a part-time food historian. I have a, another job, a day job at Penguin Books. Um, but when I'm not doing that, I like to cook food from the past, find old recipes, recreate them. And it's in doing that, it's in the kind of the process of recreating recipes that triggers lots of questions for me about uh, the relationships between the people who write the recipes, the people who make them, the people who eat them. And that's a way for me to kind of uncover the social history. Um, I like bringing in, you know, literature, art, other records of the way that we've eaten in the past and so I've written um what have I written I've written a book on um food in Jane Austen her life and work so looking very much at the very early late uh, 18th early 19th century and then a, a food on Dickens and the, the food in his life and works and they're quite interesting contrast because Jane Austen talks almost not at all about food and Dickens writes about yeah. it all the time um and he's sort of 30, 40, 50 years later and writing about a very, very different social milieu. Um, and then I've just published, last year published a book called Scoff, A History of Food and Class in Britain. And that looks at the way that food sort of shapes our sense of ourselves and, and particularly how we like to try and use food to kind of make a 
statement about ourselves and our sort of social status or our aspirations. Indeed. And how people have used food to stop other people from joining their class or have told them what's appropriate for them to eat because they are, you know, not quite as um, aristocratic or as middle class as, as the person who's giving the instructions. Yes. Um, yeah, I've read your book and it was great, really fascinating, oh, thank you. of course. And that's why, basically, I want to invite you to talk about um, the stuff that you've written. It's very well researched. And, um, yeah, the fascinating bit that I think somebody has to read your book to realise is that um, there's always going to be people trying to copy the higher classes. And the higher classes, they will always try and do something else and say, oh, no, they're not aristocratic. So I couldn't realise it before, but, yeah, reading your book, kind of uh, very obvious that, yeah, they will always invent something else and make it more difficult for people to join their class or, the, yeah, the aristocracy or the, the higher class is always going to do something. <laughs> yes, well, it changed. The, the, the class kind of making the... doing the instructions changed our history. Um, right at the beginning... Well, well, not quite at the beginning, but if you look at Erasmus, for example, in the in the 1530s, he is very definitely kind of locating himself as a kind of middle class intellectual. And he is telling the, the children of gentlemen how to behave. Um, and he's talking at a time when young boys would go and live with an aristocratic patron. And in that household, they would learn everything. They would learn how to hunt and hawk. Um, they would learn manners. They would learn how to serve their lord. Um, and uh, they'd learn how to kind of be a courtier and how to be courteous. You know, all these kind yeah. of words, you know, the, these very kind of French words that you that come from that kind of aristocratic milieu. And that's quite interesting because he's he's kind of identifying himself as middle class, but instructing a, a, a class that you think of, he's perceived obviously as kind of higher, wealthier, more influential. And then as the years pass, um, that middle class stays being the person who's doing the instruction, but but they tend to kind of focus more on what the class below them should be doing. They kind of let the aristocrats get on with it. They try increasingly and join, in the Victorian times particularly, people try and increasingly join the kind of aristocrats if you're middle class because you you want their kind of patronage, you want their power and wealth and their kudos. And so they tell the people underneath them what they should be doing. So if they're agricultural workers, they tell them they should be eating brown bread, not white bread. They shouldn't be drinking tea. It's a waste of their money and they don't need it. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, if they are sort of, you know, middle classes, that they shouldn't be having pretensions. I see. Yeah. Great. And uh, basically, yeah, I obviously I want to talk a lot, um, a little bit about um, breakfast today actually and um yeah breakfast is great great subject yeah our relationship with it basically um yeah if, if basic yeah where do you want to start <laughs> um well breakfast is a good place to start actually it's funny that you um because when i when i wrote my book i sent it to my editor and i think breakfast was somewhere in the middle and he sent it back to me and he said um why don't we start with, with breakfast, breakfast. <laughs> And I went, oh, yeah, that's quite a good idea. <laughs> so my book opens with breakfast because it seems to be a very good place to, to start the day. But it's, um, 
I mean, I don't go, I don't go back. I know you're a specialist in sort of Greek and Roman and very, very early times. And I don't try and go back much beyond kind of 1066 mm. and Anglo-Saxon Britain. But um, why don't we start with the Anglo-Saxons? Yeah. Let's... And think about, you know, because breakfast to them wasn't a very important meal, was it? It wasn't, their dinner would have been early in the day. It might have been as early as 10 a.m., ah, 11 a.m., right. maybe noon. And so if you had power and wealth, you you were and you weren't out in the fields in the middle of the day, you didn't you probably didn't need breakfast. You'd have you'd have waited to, you know, have your main dinner. And and also if you were in the in a in a monastic community or in the church at all, and this goes through not just Anglo-Saxon Britain, but kind of later on, there was quite a lot of emphasis on denying yourself on being very ascetic you know not eating too many meals and mm. i think um i mean king alfred for example he translated the decameron is that right and i think he said he did a little gloss saying you know it's much better for us just to have for for monks just to have one meal in the day and that was the aspiration mm. that they would be quite you know sort of self-denying but and then it's almost it's almost impossible. It's always almost impossible, isn't it, for people to kind of work out what the workers were actually eating because nobody nobody bothers to ask them and record it. Indeed, yes, it's very difficult to find out. But but they're probably they're probably eating what they can when they can, and um, they might be eating in the fields. They might be eating, you know, very early in the day before they go out. Yeah. Um, mm. And um, obviously, there's going to be some um, um, differences um, between the classes, as you said. Uh, we all know about uh, the lords and so on, and the kings what they ate. Uh, but what, um, how that food changed um, over the years? And obviously, early on, that wasn't breakfast. Breakfast, as we know it, how the, how started becoming that early thing that we call breakfast now? Do we have? Um... I think breakfast um, probably becomes to seem like a good idea when, when we get tea right <laughs> because suddenly there's a reason isn't there to uh you know to start your day with this magic potion that kind of gives you a bit of a kind of you know a bit of a lift yeah. a bit of a kind of injection Definitely. of energy um and so obviously we know that peeps had a cup of tea in the 1660s um that's when tea sort of starts very slowly to come into uh, the kind of British diet. And so breakfast probably in the, you know, in the following century, breakfast starts to become a thing. Mm. And um, I mean, even as late as the 1700s, it's never a very big thing. You know, this idea of the country house breakfast that we think of now, you know, with huge amounts of sort of bacon and eggs and black pudding and, um, yeah, you know, hams and beautiful fruits and things on the sideboard. That's a much, much later invention. And even in the 18th century, if you look at Jane Austen again, she talks about one of her characters uh, two of her characters in um, Mansfield Park, and they're going travelling, and they obviously have pork, but pork, and eggs or something for breakfast mm. because they're travelling. Yeah. But if you're not going on a journey, if you're not going out to do something, you, your breakfast is probably quite light. It's probably bread and cake, uh, toast. People are very keen on toast. Maybe tea, coffee, chocolate, um, because you're still having 
the main meal of your day quite early, middle yeah. of the afternoon. That makes sense. Uh, well, so yes. there were always uh, keen toast eaters then, people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, yeah, so tea, tea and toast became a, a hit partnership didn't they yeah very yeah i think very early on people would take you know put um put the bread on their fork and hold it in front of the fire mm. and and that would be and that's not just a breakfast thing people would have that after dinner as well you might have a toasted muffin and china mm. tea after dinner because your dinner's quite early that might be your supper um and there's a lovely description of somebody putting I think it's a French man comes to Britain and he he watches people make toast. And he says they put slice after slice on the fork and then the butter seeps through all the pieces of toast. <laughs> you know, it kind of get, it, it melts and kind of goes through all the toast. Um, yes. So, yeah, both tea and toast are a big hits. Great. Uh, fantastic. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, so basically... We have a um, very early dinner, and then at some point we start having more and more earlier. That becomes breakfast because of the tea and so on. And then we have the full English breakfast. I mean, today we have the full English breakfast being as a quintessentially English uh, thing, don't we? Yes, but yes, and that happens quite. That happens later. So um, we had, say, at the end of the 18th century, you might have your dinner at kind of middle afternoon. You might have had supper. And then dinner gets later and later. And this is very much a class thing. It's because um, it's having a late dinner is a sort of sign of status. It's a sign that you have got lots of money to literally burn your money. Mm. You know, you can burn the candles, you can have a kind of beautifully lit dinner. Yes. And and so the more sort of aristocratic or the more metropolitan you are, the more sophisticated you are, the later you have your dinner. You might have it at five or six o'clock maybe in the turn of the, uh, from the 18th to the 19th century. And then, um, and then obviously lunch kind of, People get hungry, don't they? So lunch emerges yeah. at around that time, a bit later, about kind of 1840s, luncheon or nuncheon or noonshine or, or noonings. <laughs> it has lots of names at the beginning. Um, and as all these kind of meals get kind of spread out over the day, then there becomes a bit more of a a space for breakfast. And I think it becomes partly, it be, it's the big country house breakfast from which we get this idea of the full English breakfast. That comes very much in Victorian times when people, if they had the money and the leisure, mm. would spend days or weeks on end at each other's big country houses. And the men would go out for the day shooting or hunt, or they'd women as well if they wanted to, shooting, hunting, fishing, doing those kind of sporting pursuits. And so they'd have a big manly breakfast at the beginning of the day to kind of set them up for the day. <laughs> uh, and then maybe, a, you know, not that much in the middle. Um, a picnic or a pork pie or something and uh, and then dinner in the evening and so breakfast became this really big thing and it became not just a um, not just pragmatically a big thing because people needed to eat a lot to kind mm. of keep them going it became a sort of image yeah. of your power and your wealth so if you have this great big country house sideboard in the evening you're going to have a French dinner or a dinner that looks French and your chef might be French and all the ingredients all the, the the names of the you know dishes that you serve will be in French whether they're French or not yeah and so in the morning you want to say something about your kind of Britishness 
and that's where those dinners they kind of reached to the um, reached across the nation. So they went to Scotland and kind of got you know Scottish ideas of sort of you know trout or and to Wales and these kind of beautiful and um, and Ireland and got these lovely ideas of kind of porridge, Queen Victoria-like porridge, you know, in mm. she made that very popular. Um, and then you'd have something from the home farm, you know, your own cream from your own cows or pork, uh, ham or something from your own breed of pigs, you know. And so you're kind of making a statement about your your reach and your wealth. And you might have something like kedgeri or curried uh, or deviled kidneys, you know, which says something about the kind of the, the, the stretch of empire. And that's a kind of... It, so the, the breakfast table becomes quite a map of of kind of entitlement, really. Yeah, so we have all these little distinct um, elements and flavours from uh, mm. the Scottish and the Irish mm. and the Welsh and mm. the English and also mm. the empire too. So, yes, exactly. Yeah. So all this stuff we know as breakfast, uh, as more um, elaborate breakfast, like... we. Like we have a Sunday, on a Sunday today nowadays. Yes. Yeah. Yes, if you're lucky. Yeah. 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 <laughs> also, yeah, we might have some avocado on toast and. Yeah, eggs. they would. Yeah. They would not have had avocado on toast yeah. at the Edwardian country house breakfast. I, can, I think we know that. Yeah, yeah. but I do, I'm a bit partial for some smoked salmon or some uh, trout myself, so I don't mind. Yeah, that no, either. it's yeah. a good choice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbean Creek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Be it wine, herbs, cheeses or olive oil, from all over the wild corners of Greece and working directly with small artisan producers. Whatever you need, Malbean Creek has you covered. You can shop online and have the exquisite goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK or you can visit the shop at Art 17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SE 164ET, Bermondsey, London. Malby and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. And, <laughs> of course, for all you dear listeners, Malby and Greek has an amazing discount of 15% of your next purchase. So go online, go to the website and type malbyandgreek.com forward slash delicious and you get 15% discount at the checkout. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So yeah, in a sense, basically we have the British the British breakfast, but with some um, a bit more local elements from Scotland, Wales, and so on. So a very uh, central theme, and then little elements from each uh, country. And um, do we do you think uh, breakfast is still important nowadays uh, as a as as a meal or as a, as a statement for uh, the class uh, differentiation? <laughs> well, we've internalised that sort of um, country house meal, haven't we? And we now think of it as the full English breakfast. Although if you go to Ireland or Scotland or Wales, they will call it the full Irish, the full Welsh, you know, the full Scottish, uh, with every justification, as history shows us. Um, And so, yes, and so I think that's, we expect that to be on, available in cafes or hotels or restaurants. Mm. Uh, But it's quite, um, and it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because if you're working... Man, you know, if you're doing physical work or you get up sort of five or six o'clock in the morning and do a few hours before your breakfast, you will have that meal in a, you might have that meal every day or you might have it, you know, on a hard working day in a cafe. Yeah. And then you will, you might have a version of that meal, but only at a weekend if Mm. you're in a slightly more leisured class and see it as a kind of weekend treat. And we call it brunch now and we call it other, um, you know, Indeed. Yes, we call it brunch because we're because we're a little bit lazier. But I think brunch is such an interesting name because it's almost as though we're saying, you know, okay, we're going to have the same things, but we can't possibly call it breakfast because <laughs> that's old fashioned. We, yes, you know, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're different. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna reinvent it. We're gonna do it different. Let's call it brunch. That's different, isn't it? And it actually isn't that different, you know, slightly different. And we're doing the, the same thing that the ancestors did and by inventing luncheon or something. Or Yes, exactly. <laughs> so we're we doing have the same things of, that yeah, they did. We have to sort of, we have to place, you know, we have to use some kind of linguistic marker to kind of show that we are not the same as our parents and, mm. you know, we're in a different social kind of world or we're a different social class as these other people. I think brunch is partly that. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I don't feel like eating in the morning, uh, early in the morning anyway, you know, I mean, but my work is not physical, so that's... No, that's a, exactly. That's a, yeah, a I think we forget that. I think, um, and, you know, I think it, it, going back, you know, if we go back, back to our Anglo-Saxon and our kind of Norman agricultural workers they would have had to have eaten you know they'd have eaten what they could when they could and they would have had no they you know the the food and the calories were kind of more important than the um impression that Mm. they're giving you know and actually it's only if you're in something like the church or if you're in a kind of religious institution or if you're in a kind of a kind of in class institution like the aristocracy that you have to start 
worrying about the impression that the food you eat gives about you, about whether it shows whether you're kind of spiritual or aristocratic or whatever. And I suppose uh, with monastic orders, uh, the monks, they would have uh, their meal guaranteed anyway. Uh, You would have your meal every day. You don't have to worry where your meal is going to come. So I suppose you you might actually be more inclined to say, okay, I'm going to fast the rest of the day or I don't eat breakfast or I'll be more spiritual in that respect. You can make some uh, rules that <laughs> suit you as well. <laughs> yes, somebody, exactly. The because they had, they, yes, that's a very good point, actually, because they were huge. You know, the monastic orders were actually enormously rich, huge landowners. And um, from very early times, you know, they got paid in food rent or capital rent and had a very big kind of guaranteed income so yeah we we knew that they knew that they were where their next meal was coming from mm. yeah that's a very interesting point yeah yeah i mean i just thought that um obviously with with fasting you know you, it, it's easier to fast um in the morning when you know when you wake up if you don't do any manual work it, you know it, it makes life easier in a way <laughs> You go well, it's to also a sign. It's yeah. a sign that you're not doing manual work. And for, you know, for many people, that was actually really significant, that um, the division between manual workers and other people in society, it was incredibly important for people to show that they were not manual workers. Mm. So if you look at slightly the other end of the day, for example, the picnic, the picnic wasn't really fashionable until amongst the middle classes anyway it was a very kind of big aristocratic thing because they had huge amounts of servants and they could make a huge kind of you know folder all about it but for the middle classes they were very anxious about picnicking because eating in the middle of the countryside might make you look as though you were an agricultural worker mm. and that was not a good look for them <laughs> you know and they need to you know so and it's like with breakfast you need to show that you're not working a working person yeah that you have this the the lifestyle whether that's spiritual or or to do with kind of class status yeah so fascinating um, that allows you to not eat <laughs> so fascinating trying to copy <laughs> always trying to copy something that we perceive it's better but uh yeah yeah we yeah. might if you if you think about now we might say okay brown bread is actually better for you than white bread so maybe eating your vegetables and brown bread it was actually better <laughs> healthier for, for for people in general rather than having the aristocratic meat and white bread but um no we want to copy that and we think that's yes better. that's a very good point yes uh, i mean that's a lot to do with our kind of knowledge of nutrition but i think um i mean the bread thing is fascinating isn't it we think that brown bread is healthier but actually i think most people prefer white i think this is one of the reasons that sourdough is so fantastically successful Mm. because sourdough is a fantastic way of eating white bread but actually being you know for whatever we don't quite understand the magic of sourdough do we you know but it seems to do something to the you know the fermentation process does seem to do something to the gluten that makes it somehow easier for people to eat and uh it does seem to have a kind of slightly magic properties and but it means that we can all eat white bread and feel good about it, which is, which is great from my perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yes. definitely. Fermentation is definitely a magical thing. I mean, and it I is, think we yeah. are addicted to, to the fermented stuff, one yes, way or another. Yes. You know, anything. Yes. But um, um, yeah, then uh, at some point we end up eating boring cereals for breakfast and thinking that's a good thing. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yes, I think we have. Well, we know, we all know, don't we? We have um, Mr. Kellogg, William Kellogg, to thank for that. Um, and he was a, uh, I think he was a Seventh Day Adventist, you know, yes, in he was. America, um, who he started the cereal business in about 1906, I think. And he had very strong kind of moral views. He thought that having too much sort of rich food in the morning for for children, particularly was bad for them and he thought that you know you should that children should deny their <laughs> their flesh because otherwise they'd grow up and have you know you know do kind of sexual things and yeah. that would be you know unacceptable it'd, it'd, unacceptable <laughs> you had to be stamped upon on, on all at all costs and for some reason his solution to this was to produce the 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 cereal and um <laughs> And you know what seems extraordinary to us is that you know they were sweetened cereals. So all the, the the sweet, the sugar that we wish that our kids, you know, were not eating, he found that if you sweeten your cereal and you've made something that kids would eat, would you know love eating, and that's become one of the problems, hasn't it? Of, yeah. Of particularly of kind of ultra processed food, you know, who have this kind of sweet spot of sugar and a tiny bit of salt and all the rest of it. So they kind of gobble up those cocoa pops or whatever they are as though that, you know, as though they can't get enough of them. And so for a, but for a long time, he he managed to do something, I think partly because he was American, partly because it had this kind of healthy idea, even though they're probably actually not that healthy. He managed to kind of get round the, um, the kind of class issues in Britain, but also very specifically because he was marketing them for children. Mm. Uh, and I think that was really interesting for us. There was a, a moment I talk about in my book when some young men from Belfast opened a cafe in the East End of London. They called it Serial Killer, very witty title. Yeah. And they charged, and they had so many different cereals, and then they charged not a huge amount of money, £3.20 or something for a bowl of cereal. And um, it came to the attention of some some sort of, uh, you know, kind of left-wing protesters who protested about it. Yeah. And the whole thing was deeply ironic because there are these kind of guys from Belfast who hadn't been wealthy enough to go to university who started their business. Channel 4 had done an interview on them and said, oh, you know, is it fair for the kids in this poor area of London for you to charge £3.20 for a bowl of cereal? when the kids can't afford it. And um, they pointed out, well, you know, we could have char- we could have just sold coffee like everybody else and nobody would bat in, have batted an eyelid. Yeah. But I think what they were doing was selling cereal in an area of lots of poor people and everybody went, no, children, children, you know, these starving children, mm-hmm. how, you know, that's a real problem. And people have... Um, People do have sort of antennae about starving children in the way they don't have about starving adults. And it's great that everybody does, you know, about hungry children. But people do are much more allergic to the idea of having hungry children in society than, than having hungry adults. Yeah, yeah, true. And so it became, you know, a great big, a great big sort of cause celebre at the time. Yeah, I remember that. It was obviously, it was uh, targeted to, but it was targeted to adults that, they had a bit of nostalgia for their childhood, I guess. And it was... Yeah, it was tra- it was targeted to kind of millennials, probably. Yeah, just thought yeah. It, it was fun. It was fun, know. yeah. It was op- yeah. Uh, opened um, near Brick Lane, where... That's you, right, yeah, exactly. You yeah. cannot say yeah. that 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many big businesses around and you have uh, the city just uh, stone throws away. It, it wasn't really... <laughs> um, yeah, they were definitely not the worst. You know, if you wanted to kind of target the worst offenders, you'd probably want to target a bank or a estate agent or, but you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. As you as you say on your book, I mean, you can get a full English breakfast around there for fifty quid somewhere in a restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're choosy about your surroundings and don't mind paying, you can yeah, probably yeah, exactly. get so, some magnificent breakfast somewhere. <laughs> yeah, the, the three pounds twenty for a bowl of cereals seems. Actually, like a good deal. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I have lots of question marks about whether anybody should be eating cereal. You know, well, but, yeah, um, yeah. That's uh, that's for sure my <laughs> my point. <laughs> I don't think cereal should be a breakfast food or any kind of food. They're so ubiquitous. Whenever you see something, or TV, or a program on TV, a series, or a film, everybody around the breakfast table they eat cereal and it's everybody eats cereal yes it's interesting isn't it how it's yeah how it's become a thing Uh, anyway (laughs) Um, so tea you said tea was uh, the thing that kind of started that tradition of breakfast but we also know the afternoon tea Uh, what's your opinion which one (laughs) where where tea the drink belongs (laughs) does it belong to the afternoon tea or the breakfast well I'm I grew up in I grew up in Yorkshire actually, so for me tea belongs everywhere. Excellent. Um, you know, and tea is quite an important part of my kind of as a rhythm of my day. Um, and it again, it depends on who you are. There's a very funny bit in um, Jilly Cooper has this very funny book on class, and she says the kind of upper middle classes drink, or the and the kind of aristocratic classes drink China tea for breakfast Mm. um and then they drink tea you know then they have kind of afternoon tea and the words um and the words afternoon tea are really interesting because if you are of us if you're that class you know the the person who has the china china tea and then you might have supper in the evening you would never call it afternoon tea because it's only it's something you have in the middle of the afternoon and it's mm. the only tea you have in the middle of the afternoon. Of Whereas course. if you come from Yorkshire, where I come from, or further north, or or if you come from a more kind of working class background, you might have a meal in the afternoon and call it tea, but it would be the main meal. You might have it at five o'clock or six o'clock. Um, and in the past, you'd have almost certainly have had a cup of tea with that meal. And, it, and if you were very poor in the past... You know, if you were kind of working in a lace factory in Nottingham or if you're working a mill in uh, Bradford or something and your main evening meal was just some bread and some cheese and some bacon or something, if you're lucky, you know, and a few other things, that cup of tea would have turned your cold meal into something that felt like a hot one. Mm. It was incredibly important. And I think that's why the drink gave its name to this meal in the middle of the afternoon. I see. And, um, but... It's and then there's a, then there's a thing we call high tea, which is a bit more classless actually in a way because it's um it's sort of sometimes seen as a meal for children, but it's when you have a a really kind of fantastic spread. And I love a good high tea because it's got fantastic, you know, it's got lots of different kinds of breads. It might have lots of amazing cheese and some ham. It's mm. got parkin and 
cakes, it had apple pie, you know, you might have all scones and it might have all these kind of wonderful, <laughs> you know, treats all together and you can have all of them with a cup of tea, which is my idea of a really, really good meal. I just imagine but, that um, yeah. now in front of my eyes and I'm like, yes. Yeah, I know, I know. I bet you're going to go, yeah, but you're going to go back and think, oh, I'm going to make a cup of tea and have something, some toast or something with it. Um, yeah, so all these kind of wonderful bits of deliciousness. But, you know, you can still, if you come from the north, you might still have your tea like I used to have a Scottish friend and he said oh I'm having I'm having fish and chips for my tea yeah you know and that is your your main dinner but if you're posher let's use the word for want of a better one um you would never use the word tea like that so that that Mm. sort of cup of tea you have in the middle of the afternoon originally it would have been with just bread and butter now it might be with sandwiches cake or something that's just called tea because it has no you don't need the adjective to show when it's happening. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Um, so Christmas is approaching uh, and I want to ask you if we have any Christmas, traditional Christmas breakfast stuff <laughs> that you know of. I think one of the nice things about Christmas breakfast is how individual it is, actually. You know, if you if you'd ask any family... They, they probably have a different one. And some people it's, you know, smoked salmon and uh, or smoked trout and maybe Prosecco or, and yeah. champagne if you want to start You that just early. described my, our yeah. breakfast here in the house. That's yeah. your, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's nice, I think. That's, um, but I think that's grown up quite organically. Although, having said that, it is a sort of, it does, it does take us back doesn't it to that kind of country house breakfast that kind Mm. of idea of you know the kind of the fruits of the land um but other people i know have things like pancakes on christmas day and smoke and spiced apple um or just because they can yeah yeah people you can have whatever you like and um so i don't think we've ever had traditional christmas breakfast food in this country Mm. but um but i think some of the, if you go back to the, you know, this country house ideal, uh, at Christmas, there would definitely be some sort of crisp winter food. So, for example, you might have something like spiced beef on the table. And spiced beef is this, comes from the tradition of killing your cattle at Martinmas in uh, November, because that's when they're sleekest and fattest. And we've always had to kill our livestock just before the winter because they were competing for us with grain over the winter until people learn you know different ways of feeding them and keeping them alive over the winter that didn't compete with us and um and so you 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 kill your pigs you'd kill your cattle then and so things like really good bacon uh gammon pickled pork which is an old way of doing um a kind of a leg of pork mm. which is really delicious or this amazing spiced beef which i really i've got a recipe in my book and i really recommend people do it because um it's a bit like pastrami yeah sorry um <laughs> and it's uh, it's not that difficult to do you just have to be quite patient you have to kind of use this, the right kind of salt and the right kind of spices and then just turn it and turn it and turn it in your fridge every day and it's amazing. It's so completely delicious. And that's a really good thing to have for, for, for Christmas. I think we should be bringing that back, whether for whether for breakfast or any other part of the day. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I might, I might try it actually this Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like yeah, a great yeah, idea. Yeah, do. Do. <laughs> let me know how you get on. 
Brilliant. Yeah, I suppose yeah, in um, traditionally or in, in older, like 400, 500 years ago, you would have one meal and that would be early. So your, your Christmas meal would be uh, like, as you said, like 12 o'clock or something early. And that, that would be mm. the one meal that you have all day, I suppose. Yeah, and not much point of having a Christmas breakfast yeah, as well, yeah. I think, yes. Yeah. Yes. But even even nowadays, I suppose even nowadays we do we do have our Christmas uh, dinner earlyish compared to other days, right? Usually, I think people yeah. do because yeah. it's it's. I think we're going back to the um, the traditions of the sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, early nineteenth century, right? When you have like a one big meal of the day, yeah. Um, and we forget about, you might call it Christmas lunch, you might call it Christmas dinner, but yeah. I think a lot of people eat at two, three or four or five o'clock in the afternoon, don't they? Because um, we, we do overindulge, yeah. And, re- and revert to the traditions of our ancestors. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we'll have one yeah. big meal on Christmas and then, yeah, you have uh, the leftovers yeah. the next yeah. day and so on. But that's a very, you know, we're going back to a very kind of um, traditional way of eating, actually. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, probably one good thing i suppose yes indeed <laughs> fantastic uh thank you so much for joining me on this episode you're very welcome it's very nice to talk to you and good Likewise. luck with your making uh yeah good luck with your spiced beef yes yes thank you i'll definitely okay. make it and uh send a photo and uh tag you <laughs> yeah do that'd be great okay <laughs> great have okay, a lovely day nice to talk to you and you lovely too. weekend cheers okay bye-bye bye bye Thank you, once again, for listening to the Delicious Legacy podcast. For the last few months, we've been working hard behind the scenes in order to create some food-related videos for your hungry and ravenous eyes. I'm pleased to say some progress has been made on that front. Keep your eyes and ears open. I love to hear your thoughts and responses, so please head over on Twitter and tell me what you think. You can follow the podcast at The Delicious Legacy, all one word. Or... Join me on Patreon, where you can put The Delicious Legacy again. One word. And that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash The Delicious Legacy. Or Google Patreon and The Delicious Legacy podcast. This podcast can only keep going with the generous support of our subscribers on Patreon. You guys keep me running, you help me cover my costs, and allow me to dedicate more time researching each episode. I want to thank all of my subscribers for helping so far to create this series. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider going to Patreon and type the Delicious Legacy podcast and contribute something and keep this podcast running. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas and this is the Delicious Legacy podcast. All the best. Over and out. Bye. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.